ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. This is the Acts of the Apostles. For more information, go to carolinesprings.church. All right, how's everyone doing this morning? Good. It's good to be back with you after a couple of weeks off. It was a great time we had away as a family. I want to thank you for enabling us to go away and uh, thank the boys who uh, preached while I was away. I've been listening in uh, to the podcast and I was very blessed by what they had to say. I tell you what, um, apart from being blessed by the words they said, it was a great blessing for me to be able to go away and relax knowing that everything was good on the home front. That hasn't always been the case. So um, praise God for raising up good godly leaders to lead this church, to lead you guys, and to um, lead in my stead. Praise God. I praise God for that. Um, as Albert said, we're continuing in the book of Acts. Uh, we've taken about six months uh, to go through this great book of the New Testament. Uh, this is Luke's sequel to his gospel, the Gospel of Luke. And in it, he is going to and has been telling us about the life in the early church. And we've said from the beginning, sort of the meta theme of this book is that it's about ordinary people, like you and me, ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. And that's what we've seen over and again. We're going to see it again this morning as we look at Acts chapter 19. This is uh, sermon number 21 of 25. So we're on the home stretch now. And uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, I want you to keep it open in Acts Chapter 19, we're just going to read a little bit and chat a little bit. There are three main, um, main uh, stories that I want to look at that Luke records for us. And so um, as we do that, let me just give you a little bit of context for where we're up to in the book of Acts. We've seen Paul has been on these missionary journeys, planting churches, um, preaching the gospel, uh, taking uh, various... Uh, Uh, disciples along with him to do that work, sometimes leaving them in the cities that they have entered in order to establish the church, sometimes moving on with them, and so on. And here we see he's coming into Ephesus. This is in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And Ephesus at the time was a very important place for Paul to be. He he tended to go to the big cities, the cities of influence, uh, so that he could preach the gospel there. And then from that place, the gospel would trickle down into the surrounding areas. And Luke records, in fact, in this passage, that all of Asia was reached with the gospel because Paul began his ministry in the big city. And so Ephesus at the time was in the top three cities in the known world, certainly in the Roman Empire. It was a massive metropolis. It was situated uh, perfectly in terms of the uh, commerce of the day. So it was a port city. Uh, It also had a large river, and it was connected to the Roman roads system, which exists to this day, though, that well designed. And so they had this sort of confluence of economy and commerce and culture in this city. And it it made it a city that was very cosmopolitan. It sort of bridged the gap between uh, the Middle East and Europe. It was right in that that area in Asia Minor. And it brought in a tonne of commerce, making it one of the three largest cities in the world. It also had one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple to Artemis. This amazing building Artemis is mentioned in this passage, though we don't get to it uh, this morning, but if you want to read up to the end of chapter 19, you'll notice that Artemis is the goddess that everyone loves to worship in Ephesus, Uh, and that temple was one of the the 
the wonders of the ancient world. It also had uh, mentioned in this chapter as well, though we don't get to it, the uh, great amphitheater of Ephesus that could seat 24,000 people, right? In the first century, they had a stadium that could seat 24,000 people. So this was a city that was well-funded and famous in the region for being one of the biggest cities in the world. And there, Paul establishes a church. And we're going to see his first converts in Ephesus this morning, and we're going to see what became the church in Ephesus that he later wrote to in the book of Ephesians. We preached through that a couple of years ago from start to finish. Um, so check that out if you want to know more about the great book of Ephesians. And, uh, and Ephesians, the Ephesian church is mentioned by Jesus in the book of Revelation. So a very important church. Paul ended up sending his uh, son in the faith, Timothy, to be one of the elders there in the church, and so it features heavily in the New Testament, in the pastoral epistles, and so on. So this is an important chapter for us to get our heads around, chapter 19 of the book of Acts. And into this context, this great melting pot, cosmopolitan metropolis, very much like Melbourne in our day, into that context, Paul comes preaching the gospel. And so let's pick it up in uh, verse 1 of chapter 19. I'll read verse 1 to 7. This is what Luke records. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Do you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, There are about 12 men in all. So these are his first converts in the city of Ephesus. These converts, 12 men, disciples, but not disciples of Jesus, disciples of John the Baptist. And if you've read Luke's account, you'll know that he outlines very clearly that John the Baptist was a great man, but he was, in his own words, not fit to tie up Jesus' shoelaces. He was a man who was leading the way for Jesus, opening up the way for Jesus, for people to put their trust in him. But these 12 guys have heard of John, they have become disciples of John, they've been baptised in the baptism of repentance, which preceded Christian baptism, but they haven't yet heard the gospel. It's puzzling to me. Like, clearly, they haven't heard that Jesus died for the sins of the world and was raised three days later, then ascending to the right hand of God. They don't know this, they don't know the gospel but they're open to it. And what we're going to see throughout this chapter is, and what I want us to take away, is this fact, that Jesus is supreme over all things. You might say, what things? All things. Jesus is supreme over all things. And we're going to see this in all three passages that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus is supreme over all things, and therefore we should make him supreme over all things. As Albert said, we like to say here that we exist to be a community of people, helping people make all of life all about Jesus. Why? Because all of life is all about Jesus. Jesus is supreme over all things. 
And it's interesting that this chapter that uh, takes place in Ephesus, the main theme of this chapter is that Jesus is supreme over all things, and the main theme of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that Jesus is supreme over all things. And the reason that those two things are true of Acts 19 and the whole book of Ephesians is not coincidental. The reason that this is the main thrust of the message to these people is because they lived in this great melting pot. Because they lived in this milieu of, of, of different religions and perspectives and worldviews and there was a lot of magic and there was a lot of sorcery and there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of pluralism and so the gospel comes and, and Paul needs to establish straight away all this stuff that you're involved in, all this stuff that you believe in, all of it needs to be submitted to the lordship of Jesus. He doesn't go in and say, well, yeah, you can take a bit of sorcery and a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of paganism and mix it in with a little bit of the gospel and you'll be fine. No, he says, no, Jesus is supreme over all things. And we see it in the the lives of these 12 disciples. They were disciples of John. They were committed to John. They revered John. And for good reason. Jesus says in Matthew, I think it's uh, chapter 11, verse 11, he says, There is no one greater than John, born of a woman. That's a big rap from the Son of God, right? Just list off all of those heroes that you know about from the history of Israel. None of them measures up to John the Baptist, Jesus says. And yet, when these people hear the gospel, when they hear about the lordship of Jesus, they leave John and follow Jesus. Jesus is supreme over all things. Jesus is supreme over all people. Even a great man like John the Baptist, even a great wife like the one you have. Jesus is supreme over all people. I had some dangerous moments on this holiday. It's the last couple of weeks. Dangerous times. And it wasn't because there were crocodiles in the water where we were staying um, or jellyfish in the ocean or anything. It was the danger came from the level of affection I experienced as I got to spend 24 hours a day with my family. Having two weeks of leisure with Renee and India and Judah was dangerous. It, it, it was dangerous to my soul because I would spend time with them and I, I, like, it was just the most beautiful, life-giving, rejuvenating, enjoyable time. My wife is lovely and lovable and she was um, generous to me. She gave me you know, rest and space and took care of me and um, just did everything to ensure that this was going to be a, a, a blessed time for me. And my daughter, India, you know, she's, she's turning six in January, so I'm like, like a superhero to her. Like, I, I'm just the best thing in the world to her. She's my daughter. I'm her daddy. Um, she craves time with me. She thinks I'm cool, right? Even if you guys don't, she thinks I'm cool. And, um, and Judah, he just sort of came of age in this time away. Like, he just turned three when we began the holidays. And he just seemed to grow massively um, while we were away. In, in, in fact, he, uh, 
He's no longer in nappies. And so, like, as a father, you know, guiding him through standing up to pee, right, pe- or, or, or peeing in, a, in the outdoors. Like, it's... I probably won't reach that level of pride until he gets married or something like that. Like, that's... We're peaking at this point. And all the while, I was aware of the danger. Because Albert helpfully told us a definition of idolatry, which is when we place anything above God in our affections. And these three human beings that God has given me are sometimes dangerous. I'm sometimes in danger of elevating them above their station. And this is so important for us to grasp because on the one hand, yes, I should experience great affection. I should experience a warming of my heart, a sense of pride, a sense of, um, of, of satisfaction in them. I should be satisfied by the wife of my youth, by the, the, the children of my loins. Right? I should, all of these things are good and right and beautiful and biblical. But it becomes idolatry when we take a good thing and make it a God thing. And the terrible, terrible truth, diabolical truth of idolatry is that we always demonize that which we idolize. We always demonize that which we idolize. That is, if we continue to make idols out of the good gifts that God has given us, we end up hating them because they're not designed to fulfill all of our desires. Only God can do that. So those poor kids that you have elevated onto a pedestal and bowed down and worshipped. Those poor kids who you tell yourself, you know, I'm only doing this because I love them so much. I'm only elevating them and worshipping them because I love them so much. You end up hating those kids because they're always going to disappoint you. They're not Jesus. They can't satisfy every longing of your heart. We always demonise that which we idolise. And so Jesus is supreme over all people. And this is why God says in his commandments to Israel, he says, you shall have no gods before me. You shall have no gods before me, for I am a what? Jealous God. This used to bother me when I heard that, when God says, I'm a jealous God. And it used to bother me because, like most people, I think, I was confused. I got confused between jealousy and envy. In fact, I saw it on, I think it was Play School the other, no, no, Sesame Street the other day, right, when I'm sitting with my kids, um, idolizing them. I was watching Sesame Street, trying not to idolize them, watching Sesame Street, and they, the word of the day was jealousy, and they defined it incorrectly. I've written to Bert and Ernie, and they haven't got back to me yet, but <laughs> they defined it how envy should be defined. See, envy is when we want something that doesn't belong to us. When I see the guy down here who has both a Ferrari and an Aston Martin, I envy what he has. I, I want it and it's not mine. 
Jealousy is when I want what belongs to me, rightfully. I am jealous for Renee's affection. I'm jealous for her body, right? It's mine. So when God says, I'm a jealous God, you shall have no gods before me, he's saying, you are rightfully mine and I am rightfully yours. Don't let anything come between us. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not elevate your wife, your husband, your kids, your friends, your hobbies, insert anything other than God. You shall not have them before me. Don't take a good thing and make it a God thing. So these men, with joy and gratitude and eagerness, leave aside this great man, John the Baptist, and follow Jesus. And the Spirit confirms their conversion as genuine as they speak in tongues and prophesy. Let's carry on. Verse 11 to 16 says this, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Some people believe that you know, the Bible doesn't have any humor in it and we shouldn't laugh at it. You should laugh at that. All right? Luke wrote that. He was laughing. Like, tears were rolling down his eyes. This is hilarious. That's a great story. In fact, I, I've got this idea, and it's not biblical, it's just an idea, that maybe in heaven we'll be able to watch, like, replays of stuff that's happened. And I, I know what's on your list. Pro, like, for me, maybe the well, creation, that, that would be pretty cool. Parting of the Red Sea. Those two bears that killed the 42. Uh, um, that might be a little bit gruesome, but I'm sure in heaven it would be okay. And, and then this, like, these <laughs> seven Jewish kids get the beating of their life as they go around trying to invoke the name of Jesus and cast out demons, beaten, bloodied, and left naked just to embarrass them. That's funny. The point is that we need to take away from this morning. Don't get lost in the nakedness and the bleeding. The point is Jesus is supreme over all powers. That's what Luke wants us to know. Jesus is supreme over all powers and principalities. Read the first three chapters of Ephesians. This is what Paul's trying to tell them. You might know about this magic. You might know about this sorcery. You might know about these demons. It was a very uh, spiritually charged environment that they lived in. He says, you know about all this stuff. Jesus is supreme over all of it. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. All things were created by him and for him. He works all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. He is supreme 
over all powers. And so Luke takes this situation and, and what he wants us to see is the contrast between the power of demons and the power of Jesus. And it's not that Jesus is powerful and demons are just weak. No, demons are powerful and Jesus is more powerful. Check this out. Look at this. Verse 11, he says, God did. You can underline that if you like. God did. Don't get caught up in Paul's handkerchiefs and his aprons, all right? There's nothing magic about it. It's God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. He's the instrument. He's nothing more than a pair of tongs, all right? God is the agent at work here. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even his hankies and his aprons healed the sick and cast out demons. Now, is that because demons are really weak? No. A demon overcomes seven grown men and beats them with an inch of their life. Demons are powerful, but Paul's snotty hankies are more powerful. Paul was so filled with the Spirit that even stuff he touched healed the sick and cast out demons. Remember back in chapter, I think it's chapter 3, Peter's shadow as it falls over people who are sick healed them. Now remember, these are not magicians. These are ordinary people empowered by the Spirit. Because Jesus is supreme, shadows and hankies and aprons heal the sick and cast out demons. That's how much greater... How much more powerful Jesus is than the demons, though the demons themselves are powerful and shouldn't be messed with. Let me just be really categorical about this because I've been categorical with some individuals and never categorical from the front. So here's here's the truth. The last five years that I've been here, Caroline Springs Anglican has had a problem with dabbling with demons. That's not an overstatement or a rhetorical flourish. That's the truth. We've got this problem. Some churches have a problem with drunkenness, with adultery, with you know, materialism. We, we have had a historical problem with dabbling with demons. And the main way this manifests itself is when people come out of one culture, come out of one religion, come out of one kind of religious background and then hear the gospel and then try and make the two fit together. And perhaps in the name of wanting to preserve their cultural identity, which is important but not the most important thing, Perhaps for whatever reason, they try and make these things go together. And what Paul wants us to know, what Luke wants us to know, what the Acts 19 and the book of Acts and the book of Ephesians and the New Testament, what, what, it, what, what makes emphatic is that we can't mix these things together. That once we have bowed the knee to Jesus, it is him and him alone that we worship. 
Now, the great thing about Christianity, and one of the reasons it has flourished for the last 2,000 years, is that Christianity doesn't expel the culture that we have grown up with. Think about this. Most other religions will, will expel, will um, supplant, will, will, will demand that our cultural heritage is wiped clean so that that religion can take root. Christianity doesn't do this. This is one of the reasons that only Christianity has taken root in every culture around the world. It doesn't say that you've got to get rid of your cultural heritage. It does say that you shall have no other gods before me. Now, how do I make the jump between dabbling in some other, some maybe some, some deep-rooted religion or ritual or culture or heritage or whatever and dabbling with demons? Well, that's exactly the way Paul identifies other gods, other idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So here's the issue. The people in Corinth are a little bit confused. They're a little bit upset. Some people are saying, you can't go down to the butcher and buy meat that's been offered to idols. And other Christians are saying, it's fine, don't worry about it. We're free in Christ. We can eat what we like. And Paul doesn't make a hard and fast judgment. He says, if this is a problem for you, then you shouldn't eat it because you need to listen to your conscience. And for the others, he says, yeah, you can eat it, but just don't lord it over those who have a problem with it, right? Don't make the weaker brother stumble. But here's how he identifies these idols. He says this, verse 20. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. What? Do the pagans worship demons? No, they worship gods. But Paul peels back the veneer and says, these are not gods, they're demons. The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be a participant's with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord. You cannot take communion on Sunday morning and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's what? Jealousy? Are we stronger than he? If you dabble with a little bit of New Age stuff, with a little bit of cultural heritage, religion, with a little bit of ritual. If you dabble in this stuff, you need to know you're dabbling with demons. And you saw what happened to the sons of Sceva as they dabbled with demons. And you get God's perspective on his people dabbling with demons. It arouses his jealousy. So I would love us, in a kind of crossing the Red Sea moment, I would love us as a community of people to just be liberated from the old gods. That is, from the old demons. And if this is somehow offensive or seems insensitive or just confusing, then by all means, come and talk to me about it. I've had individual conversations with people and it was really fruitful. But we need to have our eyes open to this stuff. Idolatry can be elevating my family above God in my affections. It can be elevating demons. 
idols, gods in my affections. So let's take a look at verse 17 to 20. This is the last passage I want to look at, and then it's over to you guys. So verse 17 to 20. When this became known, what had just happened, right? The beating, the the bleeding, the nakedness. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Those two things are not in opposition to one another, by the way. They were all seized with fear. Fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Here's the point. Jesus is supreme over our comforts. Jesus is supreme over our comforts. When someone believes in the gospel, when someone becomes a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, it leads them to confession and repentance. And confession and repentance is often costly and uncomfortable. Amen? Confession and repentance is often, often costly and uncomfortable. And that's exactly what happened here. Verse 19, a number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to $8 million. Eight million bucks in today's money. What kind of crazy disciple makes that kind of sacrifice? Like, just imagine, how easily would you, how easily would I, justify hanging on to those things? We've got an asset here, it's worth eight million bucks. Ephesus had one of the largest public libraries in the world at this time. And this is a pumping city, all right? I hope you're getting that point. Largest public library, they've got all of this stuff, $8 million worth of scrolls, books, stuff on sorcery, magic, you name it, it's almost priceless. How easily would they have justified hanging on to it? Just sell it back to the state, right? The city's rich, they'll take it, put it in their big library and give the money to the church. $8 million bucks, Paul, for your church planning fund. How easily would we justify this. I've got to tell you, as a, as a pastor of a church that has struggled financially every waking minute since it was planted eight years ago, it, I mean, it wouldn't take much. What they did was publicly confess and, by way of repentance, burned the stuff. Why? Because it was a symbol of idolatry. It was a symbol of false religion. It was a symbol of demonic activity. So is it worth eight million bucks to the church planning fund? Not in their mind. It was a statement. And it was a costly, uncomfortable statement. 
It's unnerving, isn't it? A little bit uncomfortable to think about. But for these people, these disciples, they've come to hear the gospel. It's the most incredible news they've ever heard. It takes all of this religion and ritual and magic and and all of this stuff that they have so treasured, enough to spend all of this money on all of this gear, and it takes it and it just puts it in the shade. The good news of the gospel, of the kingdom of God, is so precious to them that they're willing to forego everything in order to have it. Sounds a lot like Jesus' parables. Sell everything you have to have the kingdom. Here's the truth. Confession without repentance is guilt-assuaging, but not life-changing. Say it again. Confession without repentance is guilt-assuaging. It's not life-changing. So, if these people came forward, like in verse 18, and publicly confessed what they'd done, and then didn't burn the scrolls by way of repentance, it would have made them feel better about themselves, but it wouldn't have changed their hearts. Confession is saying, agreeing with God, yes, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I am in desperate need of Jesus' blood to wash me clean of my sin. And then repentance is the action of turning away from all that is sin and brokenness and folly and rebellion and self-determination and self-worship, turning away from that to follow Jesus. So confession without repentance is guilt assuaging. That is, it makes you feel better but it's not life-changing. I remember as a 17, 18-year-old, I used to love going to church on Sunday nights because it was just so perfectly timed. Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, drunkenness, law-breaking, fighting, sexual liberation, And then Sunday comes, perfect timing, right? Because then you can go and you can say the confession and it makes you feel so much better about all of the crap that you did the last few days. Just like I had enough church upbringing to feel guilty about it and then I had enough church attendance to make me feel better about it. Was it life-changing? No, it was just repeat, repeat, repeat. And there is a whole tradition in the church of guilt assuasion. Go to the guy, open the thing, say your sin, go back and do it again, right? And it does nothing. Let me just say that really clearly. It does nothing. Because confession and repentance is a heart issue. It's not a behavior issue. We just whitewash tombs. Remember Jesus said of the Pharisees, Yeah, you look good on the outside. There are rotting bones on the inside. Woe to us. Not so with these guys. They confessed and repented and it was uncomfortable and costly to the tune of $8 million, 50,000 days wages. 
So what I want to do with the rest of our time is just by the power of the Spirit of God, because I've got no power over you, and some of you are too bored to listen as it is, all right? So it's got to be the Holy Spirit shaking us if this is going to happen. But what I want us to do is make an attempt at getting beyond surface confession into confession plus repentance. Yesterday, I spent a good part of the day pulling weeds, right? We've been away for a couple of weeks in spring. It's never a good idea in Caroline Springs because the world's weeds live here, right? It's just a fact. Something about the wind and the paddocks or whatever it is, but the, they, all the weeds, they live here. This is their home. And most of them live in my backyard. And so when I came home, they were, they were like, I, that, we plant some new trees? No, that's just weeds, all right? Like thick trunks. You have to get an axe out, right? And, and then, oh, don't, like, don't get me started on the paving stones, right? Just because all of the, I don't know, the land around here moves constantly. It's like the earthquake in New Zealand the other day, right? It's just like the, it's just amazing. The, the ground moves a lot, it, that's why we have cracks in the soil. Maybe this is just my house. I don't know. God said that weeds are a result of the fall, so maybe that's telling me something. Anyway, it, all in the gaps of our paving stones out the back, it was just forests of weeds. And I spent all my time pulling them out, and here's what I know for sure. Next week, they're going to be back. Because try as I might, I just couldn't get the whole thing out of the ground. And I ended up, in the end, just getting a shovel and knocking them off. And what, what happens then? All of the roots are still there, right? I've just taken off the foliage. And the same is true when we come to, before God, confess our sin. Confess, in this case, our, our idolatry. As sure as night follows day, Because the root is still taking hold, the same sin will manifest itself over and over again. Does this sound familiar? And so what we need God to do is surgery. We need to to ask him to pull it out from the root. A faithful surgeon will go deep with the scalpel to remove the whole cancer, C.S. Lewis said. It's so true. A faithful God will go all the way into the point where it's costly and uncomfortable for us. Maybe it's people that we've elevated above him. Maybe it's powers that we've elevated above him. Maybe it's comforts that we've elevated above him. But what we need him to do is the kind of heart surgery that pulls it out by the root. Now, I think when it comes to confession, most of us get the surface stuff. If I gave you five minutes now, you'd come up with a little list of stuff that you need to confess and you need to repent of. But I believe that most of that stuff is going to be surface. It's going to be the little buds, the little whatever the top part of the weed is called, right? And the root sins remain. So what I want to do is just look at four, what I think are four common root idols, that God wants to rip out of us this morning. And some of you are going to resonate with one, some of you are going to resonate with all of them. I didn't come up with these. Various authors have talked about this. I think I read about this in a book called Church Planter by Darren Patrick. Um, Tim Keller's got a book called Counterfeit Gods that goes into this as well. 
want to get beyond the surface to the root. So here's four, four things. And by, for God's sake, don't run away from this. For God's sake, don't put up your defenses against this. For God's sake, don't justify this. Because your mum brought you up to be this way. Or because you're poor. Or because this is your culture. Like, for God's sake, don't do that. And, oh, here's another thing. Don't think about your wife. Or your wayward children. Or, or your employees. Yeah, he's got number two for sure. Don't do that. That's, that's demonic. That's what Satan is doing in the room right now. He's causing your attention to go to your idols. That is, to the people around you. And to make it their problem. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look at these things that you would open our hearts, that you would reveal our idols. And that you would give us the courage that comes from being filled with the Spirit to offer them up to you as a sacrifice. Something we slaughter in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, number one, the idol of comfort. These people who, who worship the idol of comfort, they prize privacy, lack of stress, and freedom. Now, are those three things, are they bad things? Tell me. No, they're not bad things. They can often be good things, gifts from God, but they become bad things when we make them God things. So if, if we have the idol of comfort, we prize, we elevate, we worship, we bow down to privacy, lack of stress, freedom. I just, I just, I just want to be on holiday all of the time. I just, I, I just, just take me back to Palm Cove, where it's always warm. Privacy, lack of stress, freedom. These people cannot get on board with the mission of this church. It's impossible to worship the idol of comfort and be people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. Not just because you're worshipping idols other than Jesus, rather than Jesus, but because it's uncomfortable to live in community with other morons, all right? Other strugglers, other idolaters. It's uncomfortable. It's not private. It's stressful. And they impinge on our freedom. I'm reading a book at the moment by a guy named Clotaire Raphael. He's a French psychologist, philosopher, marketing guru. He wrote a book called The Culture Code. It's fascinating. You should read it. And the culture code for Australia is comfort. That is what we're brought up to love is comfort. Privacy. Everyone has an acre with a fence and their own house. We're not, we're not like England, living in, in, in terraces, duplexes. Right? We've got our own space and it's got a gate and you will stay out unless you're invited in. This is my, what? Castle. Privacy. Lack of stress. We're so laid back. We just want to cruise. And Freedom. All those things aren't bad, but they are when they become idols. The idol of comfort. Is that you? The idol of approval. 
These people prize affirmation, love, relationships. Are these things bad? No. Are they bad when they become idols? Yes. They will kill us. The person who prizes above all things affirmation and love and relationships is a slave. I just want everyone to love me. I'll do anything. I'll be anyone. I'll believe anything. I just don't want to ruffle any feathers. I'm a slave. I'm a slave to the demon god of approval. Think about this. Affirmation, love, relationships. I was in a conversation with someone recently where I suggested that family wasn't the most important thing in my life. And it did not go well for me. This is another very common idol in our culture. The idol of approval, affirmation, love, relationships. Think about it. Think about it. Number three, the idol of control, self-determination, certainty, standards. Why is there an absolute epidemic inside and outside of the church of anxiety in our culture? I know for some people... It's more than just this. I know for some people it has to do with chemical imbalances and and abuse and things that would rightly drive anyone to be anxious. But it goes beyond that for most of us. There is a general feeling of anxiety and yet we live in the most liberated, most affluent society that's ever lived. Why is that? Because many of us worship the idol of control. We want to be God. That's what it is. The idol is ourselves. Self-determination. How dare God be sovereign? How dare you say Jesus is supreme over all people? I am. Certainty. I don't like surprises. I want everything to be planned perfectly. And when anything goes wrong with my plans, when anyone impinges on my plans, I get angry. Most of all, at God when he does it. How dare he? And standards. Perfectionism. Here's how things should be. Are you an ought person? A should person? I am. It shouldn't be this way. It ought to be this way. The idol of control. The illusion of control. It doesn't exist. And when we try to make it exist, when we bow down at the altar of it, it always, always, always leads to anxiety. What is anxiety? Thinking that I should be in control when I'm not. And being bound up and caught up and stuck in that reality over and over again. I should be, I should be, I should be, I should be in control and I'm not and I'm not and I'm not. The idol of comfort, the idol of approval, the idol of control, the idol of power. This is different from control. The idol of power is all about success, winning, influence. There's a whole Christianized cult that bows down to the idol of power. Do you know how many books on leadership and influence and winning and success there are in the Christian bookstore? 
thousands. Is leadership, influence, success, winning wrong? No. Is it when we elevate it to the, uh, the level of idolatry? Yes. And that line is very blurry, my friends. I could go on and on about that one. But I want to give some time, and I've got a couple of minutes. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to leave that up on the board. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to plead with you to take some time and think about what, what are the idols that are growing like weeds in your heart? What are the things... Listen to this. Everyone look right at me. What are the things that you are pursuing right now that is making God jealous? It's a fearful thought. And not just the surface things, though they're important and they should be addressed, but let's go for the root stuff. And then ask God to minister to you. He is a faithful surgeon. He is gentle and loving and kind, and he will plunge the scalpel deep. This past week, God has ministered to me as I've thought about these things, and I just want you to have that experience. So, you know what? I don't care about the time. I don't care if you miss lunch, to be honest. I'm going to give us a full five minutes to start this now. If you're in a small group, you pick it up when you meet together. If you have a family, you pick it up this afternoon when you've had a rest and you've eaten, right? If you take a a quiet time this week, for each of those this week, do this, what we're about to do now. Five minutes, think about this, ask God to reveal it to you and minister to you, then I'll pray and we'll be done.